This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Man, it is so good to see so many of you. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. There really is a person behind this voice. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin, and I would love to meet you after service. So I'm going to be out at Guest Central as well. If you would just swing on by there, I'd just love to say hi, get to hear your story, what brought you to New Life. I'd love for you to get a gift. We've got a coffee cup. We've got a free Chick-fil-A sandwich for you, coupon for you in there. Let's not get crazy. Uh, and I'd just love to say hello and see you uh, up there, because today is such an incredible day. Now, you're brand new maybe with us. You're here because a family member brought you, because you've got brunch after this. They told you that even though you're an adult, you could go uh, search for Easter eggs. I get it. I get it. You're here. You don't know why you're here exactly. I want to tell you, you're here today because everything that we believe as Jesus followers, and I mean everything, hinges on an event that happened some 2,000 years ago today. And it's something unbelievably believable that happened on this first Easter. And this unbelievably believable thing that happened is the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. See, every religion out there uh, is, is guided by teaching. And, and the teaching sometimes is very, very good. We follow people's thoughts and their words. And sometimes uh, other religions are guided by philosophy. And the philosophies shape our lives. And there are very good philosophies out there. For some religions, they're guided by a personality. And that can go one of two ways. And we've seen it uh, around the world. But Christianity is unique from all other world religions because we aren't at our center point guided by a teaching, a philosophy, or even a personality. But Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus on this historical event that we're going to talk about today, that, that Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose again. And it's not some April Fool's joke that the world has been trying to play on you for 2,000 years. It really actually happened. And the thing I want to talk about today is how you can know with certainty that this event actually took place. I'm going to tell you the story of two men that you might not have heard much talk about on Easter. A guy named Nicodemus and a guy named Joseph. And I want to talk to you about how Nick and Joe saved that first Easter. And the reason Nick and Joe saved that first Easter is if it wasn't for Nick and Joe, you and I would not be able to have the confidence that we do that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And their story is what we call a background narrative or a secondary story that supports the primary narrative or the primary story. And let me catch you up to speed on the primary story. Here's the primary story. Some 2,000 years ago, there was this Jewish teacher named Jesus, and he went around healing people and teaching things about God that no one had ever said before. And he was different than the rest of the world leaders. And you can read about Jesus all around history. He is the most well-documented human being that ever lived. And Jesus lived, and he taught, and he healed people, and he gathered crowds around him, and he ran afoul of a group of religious leaders who wanted him out of the way. And we'll talk about them in a few minutes. And he ran afoul of them, 
And he was ultimately crucified, nailed to a cross. And then he was buried, which was uncommon. Because for the most part, when a person was crucified, they weren't allowed to be buried. They would be left to rot on a cross, sometimes for multiple days, as animals came and pecked at their flesh. They'd be taken down. They'd be thrown into a wheelbarrow. In Jesus' case, it would have been next to two other men who were crucified on his right and on his left, thrown into a wheelbarrow, taken outside of the city, dumped into a garbage heap called Gehenna, where they would either be burned up or they would be left to rot. But something unique happened with Jesus. And Nick and Joe play a part in his story. And we know that he was actually buried. And then three days later, these two women who we'll talk about in a few minutes, they went to help wrap his clothes for burial. They, they, they were going to put some, some spices on him and some, some linen on him. And they got there, and, and it wasn't like what you expect. It wasn't like, like everybody was standing outside his tomb chanting, 10, 9, 8, 7. No, there was nobody there. Why? Because people don't rise from the dead. I don't know if you realize this or not. But currently, the death rate hovers just around 100%. And people who die stay dead. And so Jesus was buried. And everybody thought that it was the end of the dream. And these women went. And the tomb was empty. And they didn't say, oh my gosh, he was risen from the dead. No, what they said was someone must have stolen his body. But then Jesus started showing up to these ladies, to some of his followers. Over the next few months, Jesus showed up to over 500 people and they saw him and these 500 people took to the streets and they did not tell stories about what they believed. They told stories about what they saw. And over the course of the next couple hundred years, this little tiny religion in this little middle of nowhere area of the world became the dominant religion in the world. And I'm telling you, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're thinking to yourself, how does that happen? It doesn't happen. See, Jesus was like a a teacher. It was like a teacher from Barstow. You know what I mean? It's like, like, who's ever heard of a world religion coming out of Barstow, California? Some of you are thinking, where's Barstow? Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't just happen. Jesus really rose from the dead and people saw him alive and he captured the hearts and the minds and the imagination of the world. And it's not a giant April Fool's joke. It's history. And I want to tell you right now that you can stake your life on it. And at the end of our time together, I'm going to give you a chance to transfer your trust from yourself or from a different philosophy or teaching over to Jesus. Because anybody who dies and comes back to life is worth exploring and is worth following. So here's the backstory, and here's how Nick and Joe play in. To understand Nick and Joe, you have to understand where they came from. See, Nick and Joe are two guys who did not fully believe in Jesus up until the very end, but they were curious about Jesus. They wondered. They'd heard the teachings. They'd seen some signs. The problem was they were part of a group of people 
And in this group of people, you were not allowed to be curious about Jesus. They were part of the religious ruling class known as the Pharisees. And if you're brand new with us, let me just tell you, the Pharisees had one job. Their one job was be good. That was their job. If you asked them, hey, what's your job? What do you do? They said, my job is I be good. That's what I do. I'm so good that if God chooses to speak to anybody, he's going to speak to me because that's how good I am. And the religious leaders, they said, God's not going to speak to you because you ain't so good. He'll speak to me because I be good more than you be good. Some of you have siblings like this. They were just always so good. And it's like, ah, well, that's what people thought about the Pharisees. They were almost too good. And they hated Jesus because Jesus said, real life doesn't actually happen by trying to be good because you can't be good enough. You can't be good your way into God's good graces. And they didn't like Jesus because Jesus said, you can actually know God even outside of the religious trappings of the day. But there was this subset group of Pharisees and Nick and Joe were part of them and they were curious. And so Nick and Joe were in this meeting one night and Nick got nominated from this group of curious Pharisees to go talk to Jesus. And it was the first episode of Nick and Night. And here's how the story (laughs) goes. The story starts off like this. So there's this Pharisee, and his name is Nicodemus. He's a member of the the ruling Jewish council. And he came to Jesus at night, and he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because... No one could perform the signs that you are doing unless God was with him. This is kind of Nicodemus's preamble to the whole story. He's coming, he's setting the stage, he's with Jesus. It's nighttime, there's a hush, it's quiet. He looks around, there's nobody there. So he quietly walks up to Jesus and says, okay, shoot straight with me. Clearly there's something unique about you because no one could do the things you're doing if God wasn't with you. What is it about you? And then Jesus does this crazy thing. Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus hasn't even asked yet. And listen, anybody who can answer the question that you haven't asked yet is worth exploring. And and Nicodemus is thinking a question that you've thought before or that you will think at some point in your life. But Jesus replies to him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can walk in relationship with God unless they are born again. And here's the question that Nicodemus wants to know. And here's the question that you probably want to know or will want to know at some point in your life. The question is this, how do I know where I stand with God? How do I know? How can someone know Does God like me? Am I doing it right? And at some point, we all ask this question, if there is a God, and let's be honest, you've laid in bed before at night and you've thought to yourself, there's got to be more than what I experience with my five senses. There must be more out there than this. And if there is more, Your curiosity is sparked. And the question you ask is, how can I know where I stand with God? So Nicodemus looks at Jesus, and he's totally off script at this point. Like he came in with a question. They sent him, find out what's going on. Jesus throws him for a loop because anyone who can answer your question before you ask it kind of freaks you out. 
And so a little bit tongue-in-cheek with a smile on his face, Nicodemus looks at Jesus and he says, well, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely, he says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb, gross, (laughs) and be born again. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Because Nicodemus has always assumed that in order to be right with God, you have to do a lot of stuff. That God is good and perfect and beautiful and creative, and God set this world in motion, and now it's your job to do all the right stuff so that God, who is good and perfect and beautiful, will actually accept you. And Nicodemus is wondering, could it be this easy? Have I missed it the whole time? And then Jesus and Nicodemus get into this whole back and forth where Jesus says, I've been trying to tell you from the very beginning, it's not as complicated as you think it is. And he responds like this. He says, no one, this is Jesus, no one has ever gone into heaven. To which Nicodemus says, I know that's the problem. No one's gone to heaven to ask God how to have a right relationship with God. But Jesus says, I'm sorry, I'm not done yet. I just took a breath. No one has ever gone to heaven except the Son of Man who has been come down from heaven. Jesus says only one, only one person has ever been in heaven with God the Father, the Son of Man, which is who Jesus called himself. And then he immediately like switches gears. And for those of us who aren't steeped in the letters of the Old Testament of the Bible, which Nicodemus would have been, Nicodemus would have just known all of the ancient stories because he was part of this religious ruling class. But for those of us who aren't, it's like this sharp right turn. He says, only God, only God, who has been, only myself, only the Son of Man who's been with God knows how to get in right relationship with God. And then he does this flashback scene. So if you're a product of the 90s, it's like Wayne's World. It's a flashback scene. And here's what he says. He says, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, which is going back a few hundred years to this 40-year camp out that the Israelites had in the wilderness, where they kind of followed God on this camping adventure, and they had ups and downs and ins and outs. And this is one of the times when they just kind of said, forget it, God, we're done with you. We don't like this camping adventure. And they camped out in this one spot. And as they were sleeping, poisonous snakes came into the campsite. Anybody grossed out yet? And they started biting all the people. And the people all started dying. It was horrible. So they cried out to God, God, what do we do? And Moses was like, God, what, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do? And God says to Moses, Moses, here's what you do. Lift up. I want you to lift up a snake. It says, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So what Moses did is he took this bronze snake, attached it to a staff, and held it up, which is kind of weird. But listen, when you run out of options, you try weird stuff, don't you? <laughs> we'll try anything. And so Moses takes this bronze snake that God tells him to, puts it on a staff, lifts it up. The people look at it, and the people are healed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone 
who believes in him would have eternal life. These Israelites on this camping adventure, they looked up at the snake on a pole and they were healed, not because they had done anything, but because somehow God had allowed them just by looking at the one who was lifted up to experience healing. And Jesus says, in the same way, I'm going to have to be lifted up so that anyone who wants can experience eternal life. And that ends this really interesting interaction with Nicodemus and Jesus. And he goes away to his Pharisee buddies and he tries to explain the whole thing and nobody gets it. So here's what they decide. I guess we'll just keep listening. I guess we'll just keep watching. I guess we'll just keep waiting. Meanwhile, the larger Pharisee group is getting more and more angry with Jesus. And it hits a boiling point where they say, you know what? We are done. He's a threat to us. He's a liability with Rome because if he rises up to power, if people start to follow him, Rome's going to come and squash us and take away our power and take away our authority. He's got to be executed. And Rome had allowed this uh, religious party to have a little bitty army. I mean, like teeny weeny called the temple guard. And so they say to the, the temple guard, all right, guys, go out and arrest Jesus. And the Pharisees sit and they wait. And there's this long, awkward pause. The temple guard marches out. And they're gone. The Pharisees are sitting. And they're like, I'm getting hungry. We should grab lunch. No barbecue for us. We'll grab some chicken. And, and you got it. And then eventually the temple guard comes back without Jesus. And here's how the story goes. Finally, the temple guard came back to the chief priest, and the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him in? And they responded to him, and they said, no one has ever spoken the way that this man does. We couldn't. We tried to arrest him. We got there. He started teaching, and it was like, ah. And we, we couldn't arrest him. He speaks and teaches way better than, well, than you And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are furious. And this is what they said in response. Do you mean he's deceived you also? Are you kidding me, they said? We sent you out with one job. Arrest Jesus. You come back saying you like the way he teaches? He's got something to say? Are you kidding me? And then they say this. Have you been deceived also? Have any of our rulers? At which point... Nicodemus and Joseph are sitting on the side like, have any of our rulers believed in Jesus? And Nicodemus and Joseph wonder, should we say something? Is now the time to speak up? Yeah, we're kind of curious about Jesus. The Pharisees go on, no, but this mob who knows nothing of the law, you idiots who don't know anything, you believed in Jesus, and you're cursed because of it. At which point Nicodemus says, I've got to say something. So Nicodemus stands up in the group. And Nicodemus, it says, who had gone to Jesus at night, who had gone to Jesus earlier, came up and he asked this question. 
And he asked this question. He asked the other question. There it is. He said, does our law condemn a man without first hearing what the man has to say to find out what he's been doing? Is that how we want to go about this? Is that who we're going to be? We just condemn people without even finding out what they have to say, at which point this like very traditional church fight breaks out. And they say, oh, I didn't know you were from Barstow as well. Are you Jesus's cousin? And they get into this big fight. And if you left the church because of church infighting, you wouldn't have wanted to be at this party. And the whole group of Pharisees disperses, and they're angry, and they're kicking the dirt as they walk out. And eventually they go on, and they arrest Jesus. And he's in this mock trial with false witnesses coming against him, and he's accused of treason, and he's sent to the Roman governor, a guy named Pilate. And Pilate comes, and he interviews Jesus, and he brings Jesus back out to the religious leaders, and he says— I don't think he's done anything wrong. And the religious leaders look at him and they say, he has, he claims to be our king. And Pilate, if you don't have him crucified, you're no friend to Rome because there's only one king and it's King Caesar. Now for a Jewish person to say this was like the worst blasphemy or insult they could ever do, but they were so enraged and so willing to get rid of Jesus that they said this. They said, you're no friend to Caesar. And Pilate starts to shake a little bit. What if word gets out that I'm no friend to Caesar? I'll be the one on the cross. So Pilate says, okay, I wash my hands of this whole thing. If you want him crucified, have him crucified. And they take Jesus and they beat him to within an inch of his life. And then they take him out to this hill. And Nicodemus and Joseph are following at a distance. And as they hammer the nails into Jesus' wrists and his ankles, they put him on a cross and they raise him up. And in that moment, Nicodemus flashes back to earlier in his life when he sat with Jesus one night in a secret meeting And Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up to bring forgiveness for all of the people. And in that moment, Nick gets it. It finally clicks. And he's got all this this religious background, and his mind goes to this letter called the letter of Isaiah, where God had told about a Savior who would come. And this is what the letter of Isaiah says. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace. How do we have peace with God? Was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus had predicted it just as the snake was lifted up and all who looked at the snake were healed. So the son of man must be lifted up and all who look on him can experience forgiveness from God. 
And if you're sitting here and you're wondering, why would I need to experience forgiveness from God? I'm not going to give you the church answer. I'll give you the, the what you think about every night answer. How about that? I'll give you the real reason why. The real reason why you and I need forgiveness is because we've broken our own moral law. Forget about God. His law is probably too big for any of us anyway. We've broken our own moral code. We've got a moral compass that points north, and we've been going south. And we lay in bed, and we think to ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I go there? Why why did I hurt her? I love her. Why did I yell at my kids? They're kids. Good grief. Why did I cheat on that business deal? Why did I cheat on my taxes? Why did I cheat on my husband? Why? We have, and we lay in bed and we think, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And then we promise ourselves, I'll never do it again. And then a week later or a month later or a year later, you're doing the very thing and I'm doing the very thing I promised myself I would never do again. Do you know what that is? This is something that the Bible calls sin. And Jesus says it's actually infected and affected every part of this world. The brokenness in our, our global world, the brokenness in our neighborhoods, the brokenness in our personal lives, sin has infected and affected everything. And we can't undo it ourselves. We need someone beyond us to forgive us and to heal us. And Jesus said, I am that one. He was raised up. He was nailed to a cross. And in that moment, Nick and Joe came to believe. And then Joseph does something that can give you absolute confidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Joseph did something that almost cost him his life. We're told in John chapter 19 later, Joseph of Arimathea, that's Joe, he asked Pilate, the guy who just had Jesus crucified, he asked him for the body of Jesus. Now this was unheard of because Pilate had condemned this man and crucified people don't get a burial. Crucified people get thrown in a mass grave and burned or left to rot. Because if you're crucified, the Romans wanted it to be as if you had never existed. So Joseph, we know, had some money, and he probably had to bribe a few soldiers. And he gets to Pilate, and he asks for the body. We're told that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of, he was a Pharisee. Now, with Pilate's permission, he came, and he took Jesus' body Away, And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus earlier at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, because his plan was to wrap Jesus for burial. And when you had the wrappings and all of the myrrh and the aloe, it was about 100 pounds. Listen, if Jesus wasn't dead before that, he would have been crushed by the weight and suffocated because of it. And because of the care that Nick and Joe had for Jesus, you can guarantee that Jesus was dead, that he was actually dead because he was crucified, because he was taken down, because he was wrapped for burial in a way that would have suffocated him and crushed him and that he was actually buried. We're told that he was buried in a tomb that no one had ever used before. It was Joseph's family's plot. And that Jesus actually rose again. Because 
if Jesus would have been dumped in a mass grave in that garbage dump outside of Jerusalem and then walked back into town three days later, it would have been extraordinary, but it would have been explainable. Just think about it. Jesus walks back in three days later. He's got rat bites all over him. And he's like, hey, I'm back. That, friends, is extraordinary. But what could you say? Well, he must not have really been dead. They must have thought he was dead. He must have had a weak pulse. They threw him in the grave. He healed, or in the mass grave, he healed, and he came back. And you can explain it away. But you cannot explain away that Jesus was actually buried, wrapped for burial. And then three days later, these two women went, and we're told that they actually took some more aloe and some more spices and some more wrappings, and they were going to rewrap the body. Why? Because they figured two guys did it the first time. We need to go fix it. <laughs> so, they went to, so they went to rewrap the body. Like, let's get it right. And they get there, and he's gone. And they call these two other followers, Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends. And they race over there, and he's gone. And no one says, he's alive! They say someone has stolen his body. And then he shows up. He really was alive. And people touched him. And people ate with him. And over 500 people saw him. And then they told their story, not hundreds of years later, not thousands of years later, 30 years later, they wrote down his stories. And they said, if you don't believe us, just go ask the 500 people. They're still alive. You can ask them. They saw it. And Jesus came back. Now you can know that there was a Jesus. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to believe that there was a Jesus who lived in Nazareth, who taught... He's the most well-documented person in human history. The Romans documented him. The Jewish people documented him. Early Jesus followers documented him. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to know that he was crucified. The Romans documented it. The Jewish people documented it. Early Jesus followers documented it. This is the game changer. Because when he rose from the dead, and he did, He broke the power of sin and death and destruction forever. And he answered the question that you will ask at some point in your life, which is, how can I know where I stand with God? How can I know if God is for me or against me? Jesus says, you can know today with 100% assurance where you stand with God, if you simply believe that I lived, died, was buried, and rose again to bring about your forgiveness and mine. Which leaves each of us with hope and with a choice. Here's the part of hope. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, God can raise your broken relationship from the dead. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, then you you know that thing that's plaguing you that you can't quite overcome? If he can do that, he can do this. I'm telling you, next week we're starting a series. I cannot wait. It's called Bad Blood. 
And we're talking about the fact that every relationship, no matter how good it starts out, can get bad blood very quickly. And bad blood breaks relationships. And so we're going to spend four or five weeks talking about how to heal broken relationships, relationships that are marked by bad blood. Because I'm telling you something that you already know to be true. Happiness depends on three key relationships. If you want to be truly happy, it depends on your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. And we're going to spend five weeks talking about how you can have peace in a relationship. And even if you don't get peace in the relationship, you can have peace about the relationship. But you got to come back next week as we start bad blood. So there's hope that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he could do anything. I woke up this morning at 5 a.m. with just a strong sense of hope. And I got my coffee and I sat and prayed because caffeine and the Holy Spirit are a good pairing. <laughs> and I prayed for you that, that somewhere today, whether it's now or at lunch or somewhere, you would experience a little bit more hope. But with hope, there's also a choice. And the choice for many of us today is whether or not we will choose to place our trust in Jesus. He has shown you that you can. He has shown you that he's real. He has shown you that he died and rose again, breaking the power of sin and pain and death forever and inviting you into a relationship with your heavenly father. And the choice is yours. Because we all put our trust in something. Maybe it's a philosophy, a teaching, a personality. Maybe it's our looks. Maybe it's our intellect. Maybe it's our marriage or our kids. We all put our trust in something. And Jesus says, why not put your trust in me? I lived. I died. I rose again. And I did it so that you could have a relationship with your heavenly father. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a chance to do that. And if you make that decision to start a relationship with Jesus, I want you to head out to Guest Central. I've got these packets called A New Believer's Quick Start Guide. This will just help you take the next step. You wonder, what do I do now that I'm a follower of Jesus? Or what do I do now that I've said, yeah, I want to put my trust in you? This will help you take that next step. Our guest services team is out there. They've got four NorCal shirts on. They can, they can point you to guest services. They can get you one of these on your way out. So let me pray for us as we wrap our time up together. Lord, thank you that we do not have to wonder about your resurrection. That we don't have to have some sort of magical trust or hope that you rose from the dead. That we can actually stand on evidence that you lived, died, and rose again. And when you rose from the dead, you broke the power of sin in our lives and you made a way for us, all of us who turn to you, to have a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And friend, if you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with God as your heavenly father and placed your trust in him, you can do that right now. You can simply repeat this prayer and it's no magic spell. It's just putting words to what you're experiencing. Friend, if this is making sense to you, it's not good preaching. It's God's spirit speaking to you. So don't let this moment pass you by. Say these words to God. Just whisper them where you're sitting. Say, Lord Jesus, for the first time ever, I actually believe that you gave your life on a cross for me and that you rose from the dead so that I might have a relationship with my heavenly father. And God, I want to put my trust in you. So would you come into my life 
Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you heal me from the places where other people's sin has wounded me deeply? And would you show me what it looks like to walk with you from this day forward, even as I walk into eternity? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.